Between 2015 and 2016, 920 women reached out to EMILY's list to inquire about running for office. In 2017, over 16,000 women did. In 2018, Americans elected a record number of women to local offices and state houses. 116 women were elected to Congress, and 45 of them were women of color. There is reason to celebrate, if only for a moment. When we look over those numbers, we see there still aren't enough of us in elected office. Yes, there are 127 women currently serving in Congress, but that is only 23.7% of seats. There are 86 statewide executive seats held by women, including nine governorships, but that is only 27.6 of those offices. There are 2,129 women elected to state legislatures, an impressive number, but we still don't quite crack 29% of the available seats. Women as a whole aren't a minority of the population. We are, in fact, the majority at 51%. Something that seems to be forgotten every time a restrictive policy is proposed and passed that is detrimental to women's lives. Draconian bills that aim to exert control over us, to rob us of reproductive freedom, and worse, criminalize us. Implementing bigoted bans that kick us out of the military for being trans, racist policies that prevent us from seeking asylum, passing on policies that would legally protect us from sexual harassment or rape. Policies designed to diminish our mental and economic well-being. Speaking of economic well-being, I want to read you this passage from the Institute for Women's Policy Research. You're going to want to hold your hats on for this one. The commonly used figure to describe the gender wage ratio, that a woman earns 80 cents for every dollar earned by a man, underestimates the pay inequality problem by leaving many women workers out of the picture. This report argues that a multi-year analysis provides a more comprehensive picture of the wage gap and presents a more accurate measure of the income women actually bring home to support themselves and their family. Women today earn just 49 cents to the typical men's dollar, much less than the 80 cents usually reported. When measured by total earnings across the recent 15 years for all workers who worked at least one year, women's workers' earnings were 49%, less than half of men's earnings, a wage gap of 51% in 2015. Progress has slowed in the last 15 years relative to the preceding 30 years in the study. This report came out on November 26, 2018. Now, if this is the first time you're hearing that statistic, then let me refer you to the Women's Media Center's 2019 Women in Media Study and remind you that men own 92.6% of our nation's commercial TV stations and write 70% of the news wire bylines. And yes, the great overwhelming majority of those men are white. Oh, we've got big trubs, my friends, and it's going to take women to fix it. 
Yes, I know. There are some women that uphold patriarchy, who internalize misogyny. But that is not the majority of women and marginalized women. According to Pew Research, we know that 60% of all women believe abortion should be legal in all cases, compared to just 36% of women who believe it should be illegal. We also know, according to Pew Research, that the majority of all women want our government to spend more money on education, infrastructure, healthcare, and scientific research. And so we need more women running for office, for every seat. And I absolutely understand the apprehension of why some women would not want to run for office. We've seen the difference in how legacy media, pundits, and many in the public perceives men versus women running for office. The bar for men running for office is astonishingly low, and for women, it's impossibly high. What we need in 2020 is something we've never had in the history of this country. A woman president and a woman vice president. It's clearer than ever that we need a woman at the top of the ticket. And you won't find anyone who agrees with that notion more than Rebecca Sieve. Rebecca is a speaker and commentator on women's public leadership and power, a past lecturer at the University of Chicago, Harris School of Public Policy, and the author of two books, Vote Her In, Your Guide to Electing Our First Woman President, and Every Day is Election Day, a woman's guide to winning any office from the PTA to the White House. As you listen to my conversation with Rebecca, she wanted me to remind you all that there is joy in doing this. There is joy in running for office. There is joy in supporting women running for office. There is joy in electing women to serve in office. My name is Rebecca Sive, and I'm an author, a strategist, an advocate, Uh, for women and women's equality. And what drew you to this occupation? Well, um, I grew up in New York, and I grew up in a very political family. My parents were involved locally, and probably the most formative experience was my father ran for Congress uh, when I was eight years old, and that Mm -hmm. was in a district uh, just north of the George Washington Bridge, uh, Rockland County, Orange County, Delaware County, Sullivan County, And, you know, he was a young man and a Democrat, and he lost. Uh, But I got an amazing exposure to what this was all about. And uh, subsequently, my parents continued their activism, and I just, uh, a lot of family experiences, and really a, a sense from my parents that there was really nothing more important in a way than public service. Of course, you have to earn a living and take care of your family, but you should do what you can. Well, what were some obstacles um, that you might have had in your career? Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> you know, the biggest obstacle, um, I'm a baby boomer. And at the time when I started working on these issues when I was in college uh, and when I was married, which was before Roe, uh, the world was a very different place. And the notion that Uh, women should participate in public life or in private life in the way that women do today, albeit not enough, uh, was foreign to most people. So uh, the obstacles were first those that uh, of opposition to the idea of women's equality. And then, of course, uh, 
uh, specifically to certain very important issues, the primary ones in my career being a focus on reproductive rights and economic equality. Um, so, you know, if you're a good organizer, I was a trained in Alinsky-style organizing. You kind of call out the enemy and fight as hard as you can to push back. So that's been my approach ever since. So you do consider yourself an advocate and an activist then? I do. Uh, you know, my work has evolved over time. I also was a public official for a number of years, uh, a group of friends of mine and I started a women's center where we provided services, important services to low-income women um, primarily. But behind the commitment to uh, being an author and being a teacher I've taught at the University of Chicago um, and other places is, is the notion that it's important to be active and to speak out and if you see wrong, you know, try to write it. So I have been, I was looking over a study literally this past week. Mm -hmm. um, it was a World Bank Group's 2019 study on women, business, and law. And um, gender equality is a critical component to economic growth. I, most, I think most women and some men understand that to be a reality. But our, mm. but our country is, is struggling with this. We are, we're ranked 69th in gender equality. What's behind our country's struggle towards parity and leadership and women in power? Oh, what a great question and such an important thing to think about. Um, well, first of all, we have a legacy of structural racism, as I don't need to tell you, that mm -hmm. affects the economic opportunity of tens of millions of women and men. Uh, and if you compound that with the gender discrimination, you have this continuing uh, unequal treatment of women. And so I think that's kind of the first thing to to think about. Um, I also think that uh, for kind of historical reasons, that time after suffrage, you know, the, the U.S. was in a depression 10 years later than a war. And I think that the sort of historical circumstances were such that, you know, first of all, people were just trying to survive. Secondly, they were fighting a war. And there was this kind of incentive in the 50s, I'm sort of overgeneralizing here, but to return to normalcy. And normalcy, of course, mm. was the notion that's prevalent everywhere in the world that, uh, or has been, that, that men deserve to have the power and the influence and women should stay home and do what they can. Of course, it's always been true that Low-income women could never do that, but, uh, you know, the paradigm was something else. So you've written two books, um, one of which was in 2013 um, called Every Day is Election Day, A Woman's Guide to Winning Any Office from the PTA to the White House. What led you to writing that book, and what have you seen women take away from that book? Oh, you know, Maya, it's been a terrific experience. I really, um, as I mentioned to you, a moment ago, I've been at this, you know, advocacy for women and writing for women for a long time. Actually, my first book was back in the mid-70s, uh, mm -hmm. a book that I wrote with, I mean, a, yeah, a book that I wrote with some other women called the Chicago Women's Directory, Guia para las Mujeres. And that was a guide, but also a piece of advocacy. 
uh, as well. But when it came to every day is election day, um, you know, I was just so struck by the fact that, uh, you know, we had a woman in the 2008 Democratic primary. And, you know, had you asked anybody, you know, even five years before, I don't think anyone could have imagined that. So right. to me, the idea was, let's take what we've learned from this um uh, from 2008, from 2012, from the decades, you know, since uh, the mid-70s when women have really sought public office and see if we can, you know, share our stories and share our lessons and share how we overcame difficulties. So that's really why I wrote Every Day is Election Day, and it's based, as you know, on interviews with many different women from all over the country, not just, you know, famous women who went to Washington. Um, right. So it's a guidebook, and that's what impelled me to write. Uh, and, of course, I'm pleased to say that, you know, since that time, and I hope the book had a role in that, you know, thousands and thousands of women have, in fact, run for office. Many of them have a copy of Every Day is Election Day. But the world has changed in providing this context now where we can talk about a woman president without people laughing at us. Right. And I like that you say from the PTA to the White House, because I think people forget or don't think a lot about how many seats that a woman can run for across the country. I mean, I, I think someone clocked it as um, 500,000 right. different um, um, seats someone can run for. So I, I like that this is a guidebook for, um, no, you know, no office is too small, you know, to help change course for us. Well, um, yeah, and those are, I would just say to you, those offices are vitally important. I mean, think about the, mm -hmm. the issues that local officials address, education and libraries and firefighting, all kinds of important things. Oh, no, absolutely. I think sometimes that um, when we have midterms or presidential elections, we kind of just focus on these right. the bigger seats yeah. and uh, we don't give as much attention um, to the the seats that um, make are making critical decisions from voting machines um, exactly. to, you know, infrastructure aspects in, in the community. Um, you also taught women's political leadership courses at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. What is it that you would want women to know of all ages who are contemplating their first run for office? Well, you know, the first chapter of Every Day is Election Day, I talk about six key lessons uh, for women who, who, or ideas for women who are contemplating running for office. But I would say that the first and most important one is probably you just have to want it, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. like, and I, I think I make some analogies perhaps to running a marathon or climbing a big mountain or whatever. I mean, you can't just up and do it, right? You have to want right. it. You have to train for it. You have to tell people you want it. You have to ask other people for support. Um, you have to understand that, you know, not everyone's going to understand why you want this as much as you do. So those are all things that um, I think are important for any woman, whether she's running for, you know, junior high school class president or president of the United States. So you expand upon this in your newest book, and Vote Her In, which was just published this last year. Um, what have you seen as far as perceptions changing about women running for office since the last book you 
yeah. wrote in the five years since your book was last published. Mm-hmm. And and how have you seen perceptions change after Hillary's loss? Well, on the first point, I, I think that, or, or the second point first, I would say, I guess that uh, between 2013, which was a reflection on, as I mentioned, on what happened in 08 and 12, uh, and 2000. 16, there was the idea, yes, we can do this, but uh, then to see uh, Hillary run, you know, every candidate makes mistakes, and certainly she did, but she ran a good campaign, and uh, Mm -hmm. more than that, she was superbly qualified. To see someone so qualified lose to someone so unqualified, I think Mm -hmm. had the net effect of uh, legitimizing the notion that women ought to do this because clearly uh, <laughs> it was outrageous that they can't, right? It's kind of a paradoxical right. idea. So the change was, and and sort of amplified by the women's marches, uh, the change was the uh, kind of realization by literally millions of women that I need to be politically active. I need to use my political voice. And um, if I think I can best serve the public good by being an official, I ought to go for it. So I think what's changed is that feeling is prevalent uh, in a way that it just wasn't earlier in the decade before we saw, uh, you know, what happened to Hillary. Right. Right. Yeah. This time around, you know, we have, I mean, there's more than four women running, but I'm, I'm focusing on the big four because um, they um, like Klobuchar and uh, Gillibrand and uh, Harris and Warren. Um, To me, I've seen that a lot of people have automatically taken them more seriously, but I've seen a couple of similar things happening within the press with how they talk about women. Right. Um, have right. you have you seen some of the same things kind of carry over from the last election as well of how women are perceived in power? Yeah. I think we all have. I mean, there's just been lots of discussion all over the place about uh, the unequal treatment of the presidential candidates based on their gender. And kind of, it was sort of tipped off when... Elizabeth Warren announced her, I forget what you call that, her committee to think about running kind of phase. Right. And right. within 24 hours, I think, 48 hours, there was an article in Political, Politico saying, well, is she likable? You know, right. nothing like, I mean, there was no article like that written by any of the male candidates. So, right. you know, I think that, uh, unfortunately, you know, the sort of, discriminatory approach to evaluating people's suitability for public office uh, still rules. And I would say in this context, somebody pointed out, I don't think maybe yesterday I saw it on Twitter, that none of the the big four, as you put it uh, correctly, has ever lost a race. Right. And compare that to Mayor Pete or compare that to Beto. I mean, they just don't have the... Uh, achievement level that those four women do. Exactly. And, uh, and actually, this leads me to this question. I, I was uh, at dinner the other night with an, with an old friend who invited two of his friends, and we were talking about the 2020 election. And this woman who was sitting next to me, she was very nice. She didn't know my background or how politically involved I am, but she right. said, 
Um, but is our country ready for a woman president? I was like, oh God, she has no idea what she's in for. Um, but um, you know, she was she was a white woman, and of course, white women did vote for Hillary at forty seven percent, but forty three percent, fifty three percent did not. What would you say to a woman that says something like that to you? Well, there's two parts to it. I think one is uh, is the country ready, uh, and the answer to that is yet. Yeah. Yes, um, that was demonstrated in, in 2016 when Hillary right. received three million more votes than Trump did. So exactly. millions of men as well as millions of women voted for a woman. So that's a non-issue. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, what we have to do in terms of coming together in a in a rainbow coalition, so to speak, is to make the case, and I talk about this a lot in Voter In, um, that our interests are uh, uniform in the sense that no woman, regardless of her race or ethnicity, receives equal pay for equal work or has uh, the same, you know, has access to health care in the way that she should. And so fundamentally, while there are, you know, significant differences, obviously, in economics and things like that, um, the core interests of women across the board are the same. And I think what our challenge is, is to say to whether it's individuals at the dinner table or speeches or podcasts like this one, uh, that um, let's remember what the big issues are here and let's come together. And then when we have to sort it out, because there are some things we disagree on, let's do that too. Right. I, to me, um, it's interesting. I saw a meet the media pick up on a story, um, that AP had published where they had talked to nine women and Mm -hmm. those nine women were concerned that, um, the country wasn't ready for a female president. And what I worried about, um, because in two previous podcasts, I talked to media specialists that they, the media would take that as a script and start repeating it throughout the media like they would with Hillary Clinton with, you know, emails or something else. Right. And I did see it picked up by two other um, periodicals the next week. What I thought saw was interesting on Twitter, uh, and of course, Twitter isn't a representation of the entire United right. States, right? But what I saw was the pushback immediately against it. And I did see that story kind of die rather quickly. So that's to me where I saw something a little bit change mm-hmm. a tiny bit. So, so that was interesting to me, but we have that issue with the press, but to me, um, what I worry about, and I think some people worry about is that there are some women right. that do still feel yes. like they're not ready to vote in another woman. Um, yeah. I even, you know what I mean? I, I absolutely know what you mean. Um, and you know, I, I think that, um, I'm going to go back to my sort of community organizing roots here. You know, I think that uh, what needs to happen and the Democrats could certainly do this um, much better than in some cases they have is literally canvassing door to door, talking to people, having coffees, talking to your friends who may feel differently than you about voting for a woman. And in the second part of vote her in the first part, as you know, is a case statement about, why a woman and why now. But in the second part is a whole series of actions that each of us as individuals can take. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to have had 
any prior political experience, um, but here's what you can do to have this conversation with the women you know and make them feel that um, they deserve uh, the best that they uh, can get. And in that case, in, in that instance, the best that we can get is candidates who are, in my view, pro-choice, pro-equal pay, mm -hmm. uh, pro all kinds of public policy uh, approaches that enable women and girls to lead better lives. And if, for instance, the person is anti-choice, which was certainly a factor with some mm -hmm. of these white women who are conservatives and didn't vote for right. Hillary, um, mm -hmm. to explain to them that, uh, you know, maybe you'll convince everyone, maybe you won't, but you don't, you can only try and people win by one vote. So you don't have to get everybody, but to say to those women, Yes, I understand we may disagree on this, but the bigger picture here for women is something else. And I would just point out here, if I may, I, when I began my political career, it was around equal rights amendment ratification and some other issues. And we did have a coalition of women here in Illinois black, white, brown, and not everyone, for instance, on that coalition was pro-choice. And we right. came to an understanding that an ERA, figuring out how to work together on that, was worth putting these other things aside and we would figure out, you know, how to proceed. So I, I'm not advocating an anti-choice position, but what I am saying right. is asking people to be practical and realistic and understand that politicians like the rest of us aren't perfect. Right. I I do think that a lot of people have uh, very lofty standards about the person. The people are flawed, but I, I think, uh, I think that they can hope for better legislation and accept that their, their leaders might be a little flawed, not flawed in the way that Donald Trump is, but no. just saying that human, <laughs> I mean, like human error. No. Um, well, well, of course there is a lot of anti-choice bills, flooding um, right. the state houses this year. Um, but the good news is we do have a record number of women that have been elected also this year to state houses and right. to Congress. Um, obviously, we have yet to reach parity across the board. We average about 25% representation right. um, in elected offices, governors, and the state houses, everywhere, right. you know, mayors. And, um, but because we've we've seen this massive rollback continue to happen, pushing through, we know that it's critical to have more women running for office. I know for someone like me, I do not have the desire to run for office myself. Yeah. But for those of us who don't want to run, you mentioned, um, you know, helping canvas and, and have conversations. Right. But what else could we do to help support or encourage right. other women to run for office. There's a world of wonderful work. And I, what I would say to start is that most of us are already doing it. I mean, if you look around and this goes for any community anywhere, and I talk about this in both of the books, but in Voter In, I talk about the fact that, you know, women are the backbone, right, of community, right. public service, and civic engagement projects, whatever it is, food pantries, child care centers, parks programs, we know how to 
do good community work, to organize others to do it. And that's what participating in a political campaign is. It isn't, uh, you know, anything other than that. And, of course, they're going to be sort of, you know, mostly male, unfortunately, highly paid political consultants who make ads or whatever. But the backbone of anything, of any campaign is people talking up their candidate and spreading the word and organizing and getting people out to vote. And, uh, you know, I would just say here, it's corny, but true. Um, people died for the right to vote, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. in the lifetime of millions of Americans. And, you know, so to not participate, to encourage people to vote, to be politically active to me is just, I don't understand it. You know, I, 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 yeah, it just, I gave a speech the other day and one of the people in the audience said, I'm not happy with any of the candidates. And I said, Oh gosh, really? None of them, huh? Right, right. (laughs) None of, not one of them lived up to their standards, huh? Interesting. Yeah. And I, I said to this person, I started to tear up. I said, you know what I just said to you? I said, people died for the right to vote. Maybe not in your lifetime, but in your parents' lifetime. And then I and then I said, you know, I'm the daughter of an immigrant. You know, I understand what this is about. My mother kisses right. the ground. You know, I mean, and she's a progressive Democrat, but she knows what that means. So I just think, you know, any of us has the capacity, every one of us, to talk about what ought to be, help it happen, and and I would also say one other thing that you know, for those who are you know, and I talk about this in Voter In, you know, if you're a good speech writer, if you're a good talker, if you're a good fundraiser, you know, there are, uh, you know, functional tasks like that in every campaign for which sometimes you can even get paid. So think about right. that, too. And I think that's critical. I think that people forget that being behind the scenes right. is is so important. Um, I got to talk to only a couple of female um, campaign managers this this last year around, and I had talked to other female candidates running who said they'd like to see more female campaign managers right. um, to kind of even relate to some of the things, the issues they were running into, like childcare issues exactly. that they were running into. Like one of the women that I was talking to, her child got very sick the night before a debate and uh, the child went to the hospital. So she was trying to figure out, do I need to reschedule this mm-hmm. um, debate? So it's something that um, to have hands-on understanding um, behind the scenes would be would be good as well. I think, um, yeah. And you did, yeah. yeah. No, I would just say one other thing. I'm so glad you brought up the issue yeah. of campaign managers because the issue there is akin to this larger issue, for instance, about a woman president. It is executive power, Right. Being the person who sits behind that big desk and ultimately decides. And you're absolutely right. And when a woman is sitting behind that desk, odds are she's going to consider issues that may not have been considered by her male peers, and she's going to act on them. So that's an absolutely critical role. And I've started to see that, too, with interviews I've had even with – male journalists, mm-hmm. white male journalists, <laughs> I realize that um, some things have been out of their purview. Even these are highly trained 
uh, credentialed people. Um, but having conversations with them, I realized that um, when I was talking to black female journalists, they immediately saw what this issue was. When I talked to a white male journalist, it didn't occur to him. He didn't put context of um, our history of misogyny in this country or history of racism in this country. It didn't occur, it didn't occur to him. So mm-hmm. that, that to me is, um, I found very interesting. Well, that's um, another role, of, educating men about what they ought to be thinking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things um, that you did bring up as well, you know, a lack of people, um, you know, we only have on average half of registered people that actually vote. And, um, but one of the things that I've been really concerned about is, um, is voter suppression. And you bring up in your book that women outnumber men in registration numbers right. and that they turn out in equal or higher amounts. And I've noticed that, um, you know, voter suppression across, across the board hurts women in marginalized groups the most. Right. Um, disabled women, um, trans women, uh, black women. So how, I haven't really seen candidates um, discussing this issue at writ large right now. Is this something that you discuss um, as an obstacle to elected office or we would like to see discussed as well? Well, I think the, the, the sort of flag bearer for that issue has been Stacey Abrams, right? And, yeah. and mm-hmm. I just think she, I mean, I just love everything about her, beginning with her yeah. frank conversation about voter suppression. Um, and that's, I think, why she lost her gubernatorial race. So she's, absolutely. you know, I think the good news is that because of Abrams, uh, the issue has gotten the sort of attention that it had never previously and given people other people like you and me and everyone else, the sort of tools to talk about it. Um, It's obviously hugely important. It goes back to literacy tests, you know, in the deep South before the voting rights act. So there's a long history of that and a long uh, history to eradicate. Um, But I I do think she's, uh, we can follow in her footsteps on that. Absolutely. And I think one of the things why I was frustrated with how uh, the media framed Hillary's loss was just this idea that she didn't visit Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then when I started looking over the voter suppression numbers that Ari Berman, who um, I believe works for, I want to say Mother Jones, um, he, we started seeing that it was 30,000 people couldn't vote here, 20,000 people couldn't vote here, that um, all a big chunk of Hillary's loss had to do with voter suppression. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to see that become a larger part of our conversation. Obviously I'm with you that more people should feel civically engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I was going to say is too, is I'm, I'm, I think it's really wonderful that you grew up um, with a, a family member that ran for office um, do you think that is why you were so civically engaged right away? If more people were kind of exposed to the interworkings, they'd have a better <laughs> idea of how civics works in the process? Well, I certainly, I have to say, you know, I was, I learned a lot, even though I was quite young when my father ran. But um, uh, so, yes, I had exposure to something that, you know, most people don't have exposure to. But I think the, you know, the other factor from my childhood really was the civil rights movement. Um, 
Right. And, you know, that was something we discussed in our family. We knew people, I knew people who were active in the civil rights movement. Um, so that was a formative experience, kind of understanding uh, the, the degree of discrimination and inequality in our world. And, you know, that's the kind of realization that any family can have. That's not a function of having a family member who ran for office. Um, so I yeah. think that, you know, maybe parents have a duty if, if they're willing to take it to educate their children about not only uh, maybe the more common kinds of education, but the fact that there is a larger public good. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is when I went to uh, college and later, uh, you know, the women's movement, those issues, as I mentioned before, were just really coming up. And so, you know, it was, what are we going to do about this? Right. And so one right. avenue, it's not the only one is the political one, but certainly uh, if you, if one chooses, if a woman chooses to work on domestic violence or rape or childcare, whatever it is, you're participating in that public conversation and your knowledge uh, can be converted into political organizing. I also talk about that in my book that so many in voter in that so many women are subject matter experts who don't even think of themselves that way and therefore right. have so much to contribute to this conversation. Absolutely. We have, uh, sometimes we have imposter syndrome, you right. know, so, you know, we worry about what, you know, if we have uh, enough to offer. Yes. Um, Something that you brought up in your book that I absolutely loved is you talked about Jane Addams and Ida B. Wells oh, yeah. and how and how our country tends to sanitize political activists. And, and I I thought about Rosa Parks absolutely. because a lot of people just just thought she just refused to move from that seat. And that was the end and beginning of right. her political activism. Exactly. So, you know, there is um, there has been this tendency to ignore um deep political engagement by women right. for centuries. Um, why, why did you decide to bring up that sanitization point in Vote Her In? It's key. I, you know, it, it's, it's key on several fronts, and thank you for bringing it up. I, I, if you look, say, at Ida B. Wells and Jane Addams, you know, they had national importance in what they did on anti-lynching, on... Uh, you, know, cert, you know, developing neighborhoods and people having chances to work in decent conditions, in the case of Adams in particular. Uh, the thing, the reason to bring it up is, is to say to women who are thinking about political engagement and wanting a woman president that, you know, you can start locally, you can have an impact, you can expand your impact you know, through working with others, not because you're the candidate, um, but that you can also come from, you know, sort of regular, ordinary circumstances. I mean, both Wells and Adams came from homes where, in particular, their fathers, I believe, were active civically. And I think I talk about that in the book. But the fact is, you know, they, you know, they weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And gee whiz, I went to, you know, here and there and I got to do this and that. They rose up, they worked hard, they focused on their communities, uh, and they didn't take no for an answer. And so the sanitizing point was, no, don't take no. Uh, if people are being lynched, I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to write about it, I'm going to make my own newspaper. In Adam's case, it was you know starting a new 
organization. Um, so I think that uh, there's just been this tendency to sort of, oh, they wanted to be helpful. Oh, they wanted to improve their. No, they were directly, right. directly saying to their communities, and this is, you know, decades before women got the right to vote. Things right. need to change. And no matter where you start by creating that change, that is n not a simple act. It's a courageous act. Uh, we can model ourselves after them in the courage and the outspokenness they had. And remember that, you know, in some ways they didn't have the as helpful a context. They couldn't vote, right? They couldn't enter the professions right. in the way that we can. They couldn't build right. institutions the way that we're able to. So I just thought it was terrifically important because, you know, every woman can, so to speak, be a player. Right. I, I think it's also an attempt to kind of mute their contribution as well, oh, yeah. you know, to say that they that they played nice. Yeah. Don't you see that they, they were very feminine and they played nice and, and they made small strides right. instead of this this idea that they, you know, there was a source of frustration and anger and activism altogether. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I, I, I really love that oh, you, you put that in your book. Mm -hmm. Well, something else that you had in your book that I thought was incredibly important was that you have an action plan. Right. You want to tell us a, a little bit about that? Well, the way Voter In is, thank you for asking, the way the book is organized, I, I was really, as so many people were, just astounded and motivated even more by, you know, going to the Women's March, in my case, in Chicago. And I had decided to photograph it because I just wanted those photos for posterity. But I had been thinking about, as so many of us had, you know, Hillary's defeat, and I was mad. And so I thought, well, is there a way to combine the powerful messages of the March posters with some sort of manifesto about what we can do next. So that then became the book. And so each chapter uh, title is a message from one of the posters. So in the first part, it's the case statement. But in the action plan, um, you know, there's a chapter, there's a message from a poster that says, our words matter, for instance. And then mm -hmm. the chapter is all about how you too can write and in that way help us elect a woman. There's another mm -hmm. chapter on speaking. There's another chapter on being willing to go to court and help the lawyers who do that for us. So the action plan is composed of uh, a series of, you know, steps we can take and then actions within that context uh, of the kind I was talking about before that every woman can engage in and um, recognizing that, of course, there are different levels of that action plan. Um, so I also talk about the fact that, you know, you could start by, for instance, to take the writing idea, you could start by, you know, writing a story in the PTA newsletter. And before you know it, you could be working for some state rep and helping her develop her you know, write her policy positions. So I kind of show right. that there's a trajectory of each of these types of actions. Which I love because I realize that a lot of people, um, and I've really noticed over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. I mean, right after um, Trump 
I'm going to say stole the election. Um, a lot of people, I mean, no, a lot of people felt very helpless about what action to take to do. Right. And I like that in your book that you said, you know, marching is, is great and it's very important. Um, and then we need to continue to turn that into, um, into tangible action. Right. And I, I like that it points, you give a few different points of, of, of where to put some energy, um, which a lot of people, a lot of people need. So I, I appreciate it. Um, I don't know if, there, if there's anything else you want to add, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time oh to chat with me and, and to talk to me about these, these incredible help, helpful books that you've written. And I'll, I'll post the links where everyone can uh, purchase and check out the books online. Um, but thank you so much oh, for welcome. taking the time to, to chat with me. for listening. Until next time, I'm Maya Contreras, and this is Obscene. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.